0: Welcome to SME Radio. So on this episode of Mid Market Matters, we're going to talk about financial planning, succession, and all matters financial for mid market business owners. And we're joined today by Philip Volk, who's the founder and CEO of a couple of businesses actually Horizons Wealth, which is a financial planning business based in Melbourne, in Victoria as well as Praxis, which is a coaching business that helps financial planning businesses and others uh, better manage their business and prepare themselves, and also an accredited advisor with Succession Plus. So he's a fairly busy guy. And I did forget, you've also got a business outsourcing business in Sri Lanka, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right, Craig. We've got about 60 people over there. Uh, That business is about eight or nine years old. We've been working in the uh, back office support for financial planning businesses, so across the financial planning, the coaching and the back office business plan logic, uh, we have a very very deep understanding of uh, all things financial planning.
0: Fantastic! And I've got a note here, and I do know this because you've told me a story about it. I think I rang you one afternoon, and you're in your office late after work practicing the saxophone.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm actually looking at it at the moment. It hasn't had much of a blast uh, for the last uh, <laughs> month or so. I used to play in jazz bands a long time ago, and. Uh, returning to uh, First Love. So I, I bought a saxophone and I'm learning again.
0: Fantastic. I'm not sure how you have time running four different businesses, but I hope you do. It's good.
1: Uh, not, not at the moment, but that's going to change.
0: So, Philip, just give us a bit of background around how did you end up, well, not in four businesses, but how did you end up with the expertise and focus around financial advice particularly?
1: Uh, yeah, so my first career was in the Army, and I learned a lot about systems, processes, leadership. I had no commercial experience, so um, as a sort of late 30s, I went uh, consulting for a few years, learn about strategy. So uh, look, uh, consulting strategy through process and, and the commercial side of business. Got sick of the travel, because I was literally away Monday to Friday all through Southeast Asia and Australia every week. And then a mate of mine that I'd have breakfast with occasionally when we could get together in the same country was actually running a pretty good financial planning business. So I came to that business as the Chief Operating Officer uh, bought it to market, sold it. And then with uh, that business partner had uh, four businesses and we ended up splitting uh, amicably, very amicably and still very good friends about uh, 15 years ago. What we found, I guess, is or what I found is that the business issues are actually pretty consistent from business to business. It's And it's pretty easy to get on top of the different issues if you understand the key principles of business
0: the financial planning area is quite an interesting one particularly at the moment every single day in the media there's a story about financial planning or financial advice or the royal commission or new regulation tell me how that's affected the business and, and sort of where you're headed now with with your business and also with the businesses that you advise
1: yeah really good question craig i've coached and consulted across a lot of different industries and I've never seen uh, so much change so deep and so quickly in any industry before. So it mm-hmm. is having a significant impact. Uh, but essentially what it's doing, it's actually uh, accelerating the development of financial advice as a profession. And I guess the things which distinguish a profession from an industry are really about um, being careful about how you treat your clients. And it's fair to say, and the Royal Commission uncovered you know, a little bit of this, is that uh, financial planning has not always been held in the highest regard or, or had the highest standards in terms of the way it treats its clients. But what I do know, and this is from the many, many businesses that we've coached and been involved in, is that the vast, vast, vast majority of clients get a lot of value from having a relationship with a great financial planner.
0: and I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding as well. People seem to think this is fairly easy. My background's as a CPA. I've got a tax agent's licence. I've got two master's degrees. There's no way I would manage my own self-managed super fund, for example, because it's just far too complicated.
1: Yeah, that's right. So what we've had is layer upon layer of legislation to try and protect clients. Uh, And what it's actually done is really made a very, very complex financial planning process. So the latest sort of set of processes at the moment for us to actually onboard a new client we've got about 70 separate checks that we have to do uh, across 23 different linked spreadsheets um, so it's actually got quite expensive and quite difficult and easy to make a mistake in the compliance space of things unless of course you can just actually strip that away and be very very clear about focusing on the client i guess that's a struggle in a lot of industries where we've moved from principle based to rules based Yep. Um, but what I do know is that when we get that right and when we do, uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of times, our clients do very, very well out of it. Just like to make another point, people often misunderstand what financial planning is and they think of it more uh, as a, an investment advisor. So mm. often when they come to see us, we'll think that what we do is, you know, we know when to sell and buy BHP in Rio um, <laughs> and that's with the but it's not actually where the value is. Most of the value is in uh, two or three areas. One is helping people to work out what their their goals are, their life goals, and then to, so to let them dream again and then to actually put a plan around actually achieving that, which is the strategy piece. So as an accountant, you would sort of uh, understand and be very clear about getting the tax structures right and getting the right amount of money at the right time. So it's a discipline issue into the right tax structures with the right amount of risk. And we find that when we do that, and that's actually about 80% of the value, when we do that well, people get what we call life-confident with their financial planning decisions.
0: It's a really interesting distinction. You know, I've had conversations with clients where they say, no, I don't need a financial planner. I'm quite comfortable investing my own money. But then you find out that they own you know, the business premises in their own name or even worse in the company, and they've got other assets. They're not sure who owns them. They're not really protected very well. Just maybe outline for us, from a mid-market business owner's perspective, what sort of advice are you focused on for those kind of clients?
1: Business clients um, love working with them, and we find that – I'll come back to the, the type of advice in a moment – but we find that the impact of actually working with mid-market business owners, so you know, businesses turning over more than a couple of million, is when they actually get congruence between uh, what they want out of their life financially and therefore out of their business – The business is much more targeted at funding their future rather than them saying, oh, my business is my superannuation. And as you and I would both know, most businesses sell, but not a lot more than they owe the bank. Uh, And so we don't actually get the benefits out of the small business or the the mid-market business that we set up uh, unless we're very deliberate about creating wealth outside of the business from the business over the course of the journey. The, The advice is really around that, is actually getting congruence between what the individual wants, and then what, the, what they're prepared to put into the business to enable them to, uh, the business to actually support the life, rather than the life getting wrapped around the business and getting so entangled that, um, you know, it consumes everything. And, and that's often the case with small and medium businesses.
0: And the key word you use there, I think, is congruence between the business and its cash flows and financial position and the individual or the family that own the
1: business. I'll give a couple of examples. So there's uh, some people working for, run a building company. We started working with them about five years ago. So both on the business side and on the personal financial advice side, uh, they're heading towards retirement. And there is no way known that without the advice that we had given them, they would be able to be contemplating the sort of retirement that they are at the moment, where they're actually able to to execute their dreams. Um, They love a a good cruise. They love a good holiday. He plays cricket overseas, you know, in an over-60s team. And in working with them in both their business and their personal financial lives, we're able to give them that sort of that congruence to enable them to achieve those dreams. A couple of other things sort of in that particular situation, the lady in the partnership had had some pretty significant illnesses. And there was a bunch of insurances that she didn't really know what they covered, so we're able to actually get insurance payouts for her as well. But the, the main thing is congruence between their personal and business life. So that was with a building company. Another group that I'm working with at the moment, a couple of younger fellas in their 40s, uh, and they've got a business turning over about $10 million, uh, manufacturing uh, with various uh, companies in China, agricultural and castings type things, mm-hmm. and again... After having worked with them for the last three years uh, in both their personal life and their business, their personal financial planning and business, the business is now starting to hum and have a much clearer strategy and is much less complex than when we started.
0: Okay, so we've got a pretty clear view, I think, around what you do and how that focus between personal and business finances overlaps and, in fact, aligns. You mentioned before the Royal Commission. Just talk to me about what's happened from an industry point of view as a result of the Royal Commission?
1: So if you think about it, now the Royal Commission is not set up to uh, provide a fair and balanced view of what's going on. They're all set up to actually walk into the casualty ward, pick the worst patients and make an example of the industry. And that's happening across all of the Royal Commissions at the moment. Yeah. Make an example of that industry. So what happens is all of the good that is being done gets lost. In a structural sense, what that's caused is uh, all of the banks to pretty much exit wealth. So the only large players at the moment is IOOF uh, AMP um, and the Mm -hmm. banks to one degree or another are all sort of heading out of wealth at the moment. Um, What I think will happen, what we're predicting will happen is that those players that are staying in and some new players will do some aggregation and create some larger businesses with pretty uh, with very solid models so that the compliance is built into those models. At the moment, financial planning has been pretty much a series of um, small businesses which are then franchised or licensed through the banks. And I yep. think what we'll see is much stronger, much stronger compliance frameworks, but Translated down into the operating framework of the business not not just a book of rules that they have to follow and I think that the Smaller uh, unlicensed businesses What's going to be interesting is how ASIC actually rolls their monitoring and supervision down to that group of businesses So ASIC has essentially used the banks as their uh, cop over the last few years because Mm. They were able to get to many more financial planning businesses with less resources but they still haven't got to many of the smaller dealer groups and the unlicensed businesses, and uh, they will increase over the next few years. So it'll be very interesting to see how how ASIC actually deals with them.
0: So it's a top-down approach. They've started with the big guys, the banks, and then they've obviously got to work their way through the rest of the industry as well. And you would think... Just anecdotally, you would think that the smaller businesses are going to be less well-equipped to deal with the compliance issues and the rules Uh, and regulation.
1: Spot on. And the level of data that is being asked for through the larger players, they have struggled to get it with greater resources. Um, The advantage that the smaller businesses have is um, they don't have, obviously, the scale, so they should be able to if they're they're quick – actually get on the front foot and start to collect that data but the challenge has been for the larger businesses through the banks that the ASIC's been doing back 10 years and asking for a lot of data over that period.
0: What's that done in terms of the industry, in terms of you know advisors, businesses, clients what's happened as a result of all of that happening?
1: It's a really interesting set of circumstances so if you're looking at this as an academic case study at the moment sort of in your MBA and you're looking for a market to be in Financial planning would be that market. Um, there's an increasing demand for advice. So I've got about uh, half a million Australians reaching age 60 each year, and that's around about you know that in the decade before when people start to get connected with their money. Mm-hmm. So there's an overwhelming increase in the demand for advice. But on the other side, there's a, will be a reduction in the number of advisors. So part of the the changes is uh, exams and Uh, Higher education standards, and we're fully expecting that about 30 to 35 percent of advisors won't, uh, will decide not to actually cross that bridge over the next three years. So, what we've got is increasing demand for advice and uh, diminishing ability Mm. to supply that advice in a much more complex environment.
0: It's an interesting, uh, interesting challenge. And a good opportunity, by the sounds of it.
1: Yeah, look, whenever there's discontinuity like that, there is opportunity. Um, it's pretty hard at the moment to sort of work through because of the uncertainty about how advice is going or how advice is going to be governed, not how advice looks. We're very clear about that. But the um, the governance of that through uh, ASIC and APRA over the next few years is a bit of a moving feast at the moment. And what you typically see happening is that people will take to an illogical conclusion... Uh, something that one of the regulators puts out and it becomes all doom and gloom yep. and you know, I think one of the footy coaches here said nothing is ever as good as it seems or as bad as it seems yep. so it's worth actually you know, just taking a breath and focusing back on clients and making sure that we're regenerating our business models to use a better mix of technology and people to make sure that we're actually doing a great job for our clients and the good businesses are doing that at the moment,
0: Craig. It's an interesting opportunity I think there's As you said, the the increased demand is not going to go away anytime soon. Finance and investment and so on and structures become more complicated. People need better advice. But you've got this interesting industry dynamic at the moment. What's happened to businesses as a result in terms of things like valuation and exit of businesses? You've obviously got a stack of baby boomers that own financial planning businesses. What's happening to them in terms of exit and valuation?
1: Yep. So pretty typically the model has been what they would call a a three times, around about three times recurring revenue model that's changing and changing pretty rapidly. So there are still smaller books of business being sold on a, an EBIT, sorry, a, a recurring revenue multiple but significantly reduced from the three. And the reason for that is people don't know what risk is in those books of business yep. because ASIC will come after uh, the people owning those businesses to repay money and um, so there's, there's a lot of uncertainty around those sort of valuations at the moment. Um, what we're finding is that people are putting businesses up for sale, and whereas a year ago or two years ago those books would have been snapped up because people were running an aggregation model, but what we're finding now is that, and I'm very very confident about this, is that will really go to a, you know, a, an EBIT model for most businesses. We already are for the larger businesses, and right. I think the smaller businesses or smaller books of business will become will again significantly reduce in value because the risks will begin to be uncovered and have to be paid for by those purchases. But again, I see see a massive opportunity for those that can have good, clean businesses, Mm. run great processes, great client engagement because of the demand and supply thing. And I think what we will be doing is taking on clients at higher levels of fees and greater complexity of advice. And those, the, the real challenge in all of this is how do we service those or how do those people who can't really afford advice, that are paid for it in the past through commissions and things, how do they actually get advice now?
0: Yeah, and that's a big challenge, obviously, because people do have a bit of an adversity to paying good fees for that advice up front.
1: Yeah, initially they do until they see the value. Until they get the value, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and it actually takes two or three years for people to actually get that value sorted, you know, to see it. Yeah. Um, because it's a, it's a lifetime process, not a, you know, not a one-off type process.
0: Okay. So I guess I'm interested to find out, what are you telling your clients in terms of financial advisors? What are the key strategies they need to put in place in terms of their businesses?
1: The big one is double down on, in engaging uh, your existing clients. In the past, it's been acceptable to offer a review uh, and to get paid for that offer. That's not acceptable. Um, and, you know, I, I think community standards are right in saying that that's not acceptable. Yep. Uh, and so we've tended to have a little bit of lazy advice where if the client doesn't come in, uh, that's okay, we'll pick them up next year. That's no longer acceptable. Uh, the big thing which clients want to know is, am I on track for my lifetime goals and objectives? Yeah. And, you know, that's sort of three-quarters of clients are saying, that's my biggest issue. Uh, but the challenge is, is that only about 30% of clients that are advised actually know whether they're on track. So it's bridging that gap is the first thing and being very deliberate about using technology and great people within your process to demonstrate uh, that the clients are on track. So the second one would be, as I said, is using that mix of technology and people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mostly it's been a people thing and particularly generationally. So the boomers that are exiting been a bit sort of reluctant to use some of that technology with clients but younger generations of advisors are saying you know stack it up let's use it and I I know how to do this stuff um what they sometimes lack though was some of the the personal skills that the older advisors that that might have right processes so building really strong processes around client engagement and Building great processes not only adds um, efficiency, but it also protects the business. And I would also say adding the management processes as well. We tend to be pretty good at doing the client-facing processes, but the management processes add value to the business, or if they're not there, they actually detract from the business. Mm. Overall, though, it's actually focused on demonstrating value. It's expensive to give advice, uh, but, again, the value to the client is far more than the cost but you have to be deliberate about demonstrating that value. So both in the the soft value, the relationship, but also demonstrating the value of the strategy, using numbers and charts and the technology to do that.
0: Fantastic. I mean, there's a combination of things there around existing clients, technology, people, processes, but you've used the word demonstrating value several times. I think that's the key, isn't
1: it? That's exactly right. So the demonstration of value is super important. I guess in the past, people felt that advice was going to be paid for by commissions. That hasn't been the case for a long time. And so it's incumbent on the advisor to to actually be deliberate about demonstrating that value. It's not the client's fault if they don't see the value. It's Mm. the advice, and they have to be deliberate about doing that to the point where they build it into all of their conversations and processes.
0: Okay, before we wrap up, um, number one tip for mid-market business owners in this space.
1: So just relax about what's going to change with the regulations. I'm not saying ignore them. Wait until you're clear about them and get back to servicing your clients and building processes and, technology and using great people and technology to do that.
0: Fantastic. Philip, thanks for joining us. It's been really interesting.
1: Thanks, Craig. Appreciate the opportunity. Cheers. Thank you for listening to SME Radio, proudly produced by EagleWave small business podcasting platform. For more great episodes like this, go to smea.org.au. Remember, if you have a story to tell, we want to share it.